Prince André arrives in his father's dining hall, where his sister Maria, his pregnant wife Lise, and Mademoiselle Borion are waiting. There is one unusual guest at the table, the general's personal architect, Mikhail Ivanovich. This is an odd dynamic, because the architect is a rare individual beyond the inner family circle who's admitted to the table in terms of his social class, namely being a servant, and also because the general is quite the loner. He's there in one sense to show a quirk or idiosyncrasy of the general. But we do know he's also trying to show his daughter by inviting his servant to dine regularly that all men are created equal. This dynamic also may be symbolic of skilled workers or professionals rising in status. And besides these handful of guests, the dining room was filled to capacity with working servants. This includes waiters transporting the food around and footmen behind each seat ready to serve the guests. Everything is ornate and organized with a sense of precision. Prince André, while looking up, notices a new addition on one of the walls. It's a family tree, or framed genealogy. This was something that was often quite fictional, but very important to many aristocratic families. This one implied that the general's genealogy went all the way back to the era of the Kievan Rus, notably a legendary chieftain of the Rus, Rurik. When Prince André noticed it, he pointed out how comical he found it to his sister. But to Nikolai and Maria, it was very serious. This fictional family, symbolic of the aristocracy of that time, wanted to trace its ancestry back to the ruling dynasty of the princes of Kiev, which of course is in modern-day Ukraine, whose people in general, as you probably know, want the furthest thing to do with anything Russian. This shared history, which both populations struggle over, goes back to the 9th, 10th, and 11th centuries A.D., this history that the general is tying himself to also involves historical figures such as Prince Volodymyr the Great, a Rus prince who decided after much consideration to convert from pagan beliefs and adopt the eastern version of Christianity, which was directed from Constantinople as opposed to the western form directed from Rome and France, and also Volodymyr's son, Yaroslav the Wise, who developed Kiev to be modeled on Constantinople. The Rus themselves started out as Scandinavian explorers, essentially Vikings, and they would trade furs, slaves, and cereals from the Baltic to Black Sea, at times settling, mixing, and intermarrying with the local Slavic population. They would frequently use the Dnieper River, which famously divides Ukraine into its right bank and left bank, and it's thought that the term Rus is navigational and means rudder. The Rus is a people, or an ideal, from which various peoples developed. And Rus means a lot more than Russian. Which adds some modern-day gravitas to André's laughter at the genealogy. So back to the story and the point in time where the clock strikes two in the afternoon. This was the appointed time for the meal, and General Belkonsky arrived precisely on schedule. He noticed the pregnant figure of Lise, and he tried to be genial. He proffered that she should walk for exercise, but that made her feel uncomfortable. He then asked about Lise's father's health, as well as some of their mutual acquaintances. The little princess warmed up to him, and they became engaged in some friendly banter. 
He also used his architect as something of a conduit to relay how the two of them in their political discussions always thought Napoleon a man of straw. Mikhail, when hearing this, wondered when they ever had such a discussion, but remained silent. Mikhail generally kept very quiet at the table, one reason the elder Belkonsky liked having him around. Andrei felt compelled to counter that Bonaparte is an extraordinary tactician. The general's idea seems to have been to get a lively conversation about the war going, and he succeeded. He then takes on a in-my-day demeanor that's at the heart of this chapter. He boasts that Napoleon is successful because he didn't have to face off against the generals that Nikolai Bilkonsky served under. Figures like Alexander Suvorov or Grigory Potemkin. Suvorov is renowned for his successes in conflicts against the Ottomans as well as against Poland. He also wrote a famous military treatise called The Science of Victory, where he placed an emphasis on the need for speed and mobility in an 18th century army. Suvorov is also renowned for a march through the Swiss Alps in 1799 with approximately 21,000 troops. Suvorov's army was traveling from northern Italy to Switzerland. This is a 185-mile march over a treacherous mountain pass that was accomplished in about 21 days. And out of his 21,000 soldiers, a good 6,000 died and 5,000 were reduced to shambles. The idea was to liberate Switzerland through linking up with allies from Austria. It didn't work because French General Messina prevailed over the Austrians that Suvorov was supposed to connect with. And also Suvorov's troops were in no condition to fight anyway. His essential battle in this retreat was one against nature. And Grigory Potemkin was another favorite of the era. It's said that for the better part of two decades, he was the most powerful man in the empire. He had this magnanimous, larger-than-life reputation, known for extravagance, a level of generosity, and also held a reputation as an excellent administrator. He was renowned for his leadership in the Russo-Turkish War of 1867-74. to he essentially drew up a plan for the conquest of Crimea from the Ottoman Empire, and it was realized. Thereafter, he led efforts to modernize the navy and set up the Black Sea Fleet. He helped develop Sevastopol, as well as Kherson, in ways that the empress appreciated. Though when Catherine was set to tour the conquered south of what is today Ukraine, legend has it he set up facades, or Potemkin villages, Villages that had no true substance or infrastructure, but if you looked at it while passing by, on a boat for example, looked just real enough to persuade the empress that these were new cities on the rise. And he actually had a plan to reestablish the Byzantine Empire that was never realized. So Suvorov and Potemkin were gods in the eyes of Nicholas Belkonsky and his peers, but the man who captivates the masses in the current era is Napoleon. At the dinner table, Nikolai Belkonsky announced that he felt the war was something of a puppet show that wouldn't amount to much. Tolstoy is bringing you through the prevailing feeling of 1805. Until it actually happened, it was almost unfathomable that various monarchies that existed for centuries would be overthrown. When Andrei hears his father putting down Napoleon, 
He highlights what happened when Suvorov met Napoleon's forces in the Alps. Andrei's fairly polite rebuke causes his father to lose his temper and fling a plate. He takes any attempt to damage Suvorov's reputation as a personal insult. The elder Belkonsky yells about how Suvorov's hands were tied by the Austrian bureaucracy. And even though he doesn't think much of anybody from his son's era, the King of Prussia recognizes that Napoleon is going to be very tough to outmaneuver. He expresses that the coalition will have to ally itself with French exiles. The Austrians did send emissaries to New York to try to get exile general Victor Moreau in their service. Moreau was a general who helped Napoleon rise to power, but later became a rival and was banished to the United States. Nikolai Bilkonsky, again speaking to generational struggle, voices that Napoleon built his reputation on victories against the Germans. He continues that the Germans don't beat anyone outside themselves. He's passionately into the conversation and lists some of Napoleon's supposed errors. His son sat quietly, somewhat amazed at all his father knew, given his relative isolation at Bald Hills. Nikolai admits that this potential conflict keeps him up, where he's running through scenarios of what could happen. He then directs himself to his son and says, somewhat sarcastically, Tell me about this great commander of yours, referring to Mikhail Kutuzov. How has he proved his worthiness? His son replies that that would be too long a story, but the answer to that will come in full throughout the course of the novel. Nikolai Bilkonsky then goes back to singing that tune which he was humming at the end of the last chapter, referring to how the Duke of Marlborough went off to war and nobody knows when he'll return. The old man's tone and aggressiveness once again put Princess Lee's on edge. As she left the meal, she spoke with Maria and noted, What a clever man your father is. Perhaps that is why I am so afraid of him. But Maria, not seeing past her adulation and respect for her father, responded by noting how kind she thought her father was.